welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a piano player and composer best known for scoring the Nickelodeon series Hey Arnold, Jim Lang. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. And today, I am honored to have Jim Lang with us. How are you doing, sir? Thank you for joining us. I'm doing well. It's nice to be here. Thanks, Leander. Could you please introduce yourself to the people here? Yes, my name is Jim Lang. Uh, I'm a composer, and I'm talking to you from the Bay Area in California. Okay. That was a very short introduction with all your accomplishments, but uh, I take it. (laughs) So, sir, have you ever, actually, where did you study music? Well, I'm pretty much self-taught. I I took piano lessons when I was a kid for a very short period of time. I was a pretty terrible piano student. And uh, and then I... uh, uh, pretty much uh, learned everything else just by doing it um, over the over the years, and of course, you know, still learning every day. So no conservatory, no undergrad, or anything. No, uh, n- none of that. I uh, I went to college for a couple of years, but I I was actually uh, in the theater program at Northwestern, and um, did. Music and, and theater kind of side by side when I was in high school and in college. And then um, I was hired by the Chicago Free Street Theater, which was a joint project of the Goodman Theater and the Illinois Arts Council. Um, and in that, uh, in that company, uh, I assumed the, the duties of <laughs> music director and uh, that was kind of my pivot to taking the musical part of things more seriously. Okay, that's unique for the most part. So how did that lead to your first... So let's go from there. So from there, what led to the first gig, a major thing? Well, let's see. Um, I did some... I, I did some playing uh, professionally. Um, it's kind of a, <laughs> like most people's story. It's a pretty twisting path. So uh, I'll, I'll try and give you the, the shorter, long version. Um, when, uh, when I got into the, to the street theater, uh, I was with them for about three years. Um, and we performed in the Chicago area. Uh, in, um, uh, in in neighborhoods uh, pretty much on the south side of Chicago, uh, some stuff on the north side, but a lot of stuff in on the south side of Chicago and then downstate throughout Illinois. Uh, at one point, we did a TV show uh, that was on WGN, um, all kinds of different permutations of that theater company. At the same time, I was doing, uh, still doing some theater stuff and at one point, I may, had made a song demo of some songs that I had written, uh, and that got passed on to um, a, a, an agent in Boston who got in touch with me, and he said, hey, if you want to come out to Boston, uh, I'll, I'll represent you. We're in an area with a lot of uh, 
college gigs. Uh, we can get you work out here and then we'll try and get you a record deal. So that was what I wanted to do. And I said, great, I'll, I'll be there. A friend of mine, uh, Bill Gable, and I put a band together. It was called Gable and Lang. And we moved to Boston. And uh, right about the time we got to Boston, disco happened. And uh, singer-songwriter stuff, uh, like what we were doing, was not in high demand, <laughs> to, put it, to put it mildly. So uh, uh, at that point, I, uh, I had uh, some friends that I had been playing with in Boston who had moved to the West Coast, were in L.A., and they were getting work uh, doing song demos. You know, back in the day, um, down in Hollywood, there were lots of little uh, songwriter studios um, where people would record song demos for uh, for songwriters. And you would go in and you'd get paid 75 bucks a tune or 80 bucks an hour or whatever. And uh, it was a, you know, it was a decent way to make a living. It was kind of like low-end studio work. So... I decided I was going to move out there and uh, move out to uh, Los Angeles. And so that happened in 1978. Um, and then uh, a couple of things happened at that point. I had my own band for a while. Um, I went on the road with uh, Joe Cocker and the Pointer Sisters, uh, did tours with them. Wait, okay, wait. Um, yeah. So, how did you get those two? Because those are two big names. Um, you know, the, it's kind of the way things happen in uh, in the world. You you make uh, acquaintances with people. The acquaintances in this case were other uh, other pe players that I had worked with who happened to be in the bands. Or, you know, my first uh, touring gig, which happened even before I left Chicago, I moved out to Los Angeles for. Uh, I was out there maybe four or five months uh, to to write songs with a guy that I had met in the Midwest named Rocky Grace, who was Joe Walsh's piano player. And um, uh, Rocky worked for a guy named Rick Rogers, who was a, a booking agent, and he booked Todd Rundgren. So uh, uh, Todd Rundgren was going on the road to promote his uh, record, Something Anything, and uh, Rocky was offered the job of keyboard player and he didn't want to go on the road. So he asked me if I wanted to audition. And I said, yes. And I got that gig. So that was actually my first, uh, Rundgren was my first uh, touring gig in 1972. Okay. Uh, but then I ended up back in Chicago and doing, doing more stuff with the street theater after that and then moved to Boston. So <laughs> moving all over the country in, in, search of, uh, in search of a place to land. So when did uh, you get the Pointer Sisters gig? Pointer Sisters, I think, was in um, was in nineteen seventy nine. I think would okay. be seventy nine or, or nineteen eighty. Um, uh, and it was kind of when their biggest, my favorite album of them, and I believe their uh, biggest one came out. So yeah, yeah, they were kind of. This was when they were in there. We want to be the Black Rolling Stones era, you know, yeah. working <laughs> with, working with Richard Perry and. Um, uh, it, it was a good band. It was a, it was a pretty crazy tour. It, it was, uh, you know, old, old style rock and roll touring <laughs> with all that that entails. Okay. So how was touring actually back then, especially with names like that? Do you think it was more lively versus today? Well, one major difference was the fact that you flew, uh, everywhere as opposed to riding in a tour bus. So, 
I remember on the Todd Rundgren tour, pulling up to the curb in uh, at LAX um, and uh, watching the equipment truck pull up behind us and um, a porter, you know, a, what they used to call a red cap back in the day, you know, got the guys that, that handled all the baggage came out to the curb and the road manager just started peeling off $100 bills. <laughs> and that was how... That was how we got our equipment on the airplane. And then when we landed, um, my recollection is we flew into New York. And when we landed, we were looking out the windows of the airplane while we we're waiting to get off. And stuff was coming out of the, uh, the cargo door on the airplane and falling on the tarmac uh, on the airport runway. And that was because they, they bribed the guys in L.A. to put the stuff on the plane but none of that money ended up in the hands of the guys on the other end. And it was all this big, heavy stuff. And so they took out, <laughs> they took out their ire by letting the equipment fall on the ground. So I played a couple of gigs uh, on that tour with a piano that had a whole bunch of broken keys. It was barely hanging together. So uh, that's one way that touring was very different. You know, the, the latter day tours that I did, uh, we'd be on a tour bus. We'd have semis that traveled with us that carried the equipment. Um, that's the way people tour now. Um, some, sometimes people, if you're really super big time, uh, you'll fly on a private plane or something like that. But most, you know, mid-level acts, you're, you're riding around in a tour bus. That is true. So it's also different, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very different vibe. Uh, it's uh, Touring is really... Uh, touring... Uh, at least my experience of touring, which has been many years ago now, I was really great for the first couple of years. The first time you went every place uh, was super exciting. Um, we played a lot of incredible venues over the years. We played the first uh, rock concert that was ever played in Carnegie Hall. Um, we played at Radio City uh, Music Hall. Um, those were, you know, fantastic experiences. We played in um, in, in Berlin, in, in Germany, in this giant um, concrete uh, auditorium in the, in the center of Berlin. I can't remember the name of the hall, but, you know, uh, and, then, and then somebody that came to the gig took us out for a, a midnight tour. We went to Checkpoint Charlie when the Berlin Wall was still up and had the Russian guys up in the pillbox looking at us with uh, binoculars. So um, uh, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of great experiences uh, back in the day. And uh, to me, you know, that stuff didn't happen as much when I was uh, touring in, in the United States on the, on the bus tours. So you said you got, you got tired of touring like that? Well, uh, really what happened was uh, I, I ended up getting married in 1985. And um, my wife had, my wife and I had, tried to make a go of having a relationship when I was gone for months out of the year. Uh, and, uh, it takes a, you know, uh, yeah, I get it, you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's difficult, you know, it, it's difficult, even if you're, even if everybody's behaving themselves, which we did, you know, it's still really difficult to have a relationship with somebody, uh, and be gone that much and then come back and try and just pick up where you left off. It's, it, it's really hard. So in essence, when, when I got married, my wife said to me, so, you know, what are you going to do for a living now? And, uh, that turned out to be, uh, trying to stay in LA and, and do studio work. 
um, and and eventually uh, do uh, film and TV composing. Okay, that, that makes sense. So before we get into that part, you wrote uh, one of my favorite rock albums, Richard Marx. <laughs> Dude, I, I did. have no idea. Like, three of those songs are on my workout charts. <laughs> Is that true? Wow. Yes. Should have known better. Uh, God Had Mercy, and I'm forgetting the other one. I think the, it's Lonely the Hearts. Flame of, the Flame of Love? Wasn't that one of them? The, the Something of Love? Yes. Okay, yes. Yeah. But... Well, uh, How did- I, 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 <laughs> I have to say, I don't think I was a writer. Uh, I was a, I think I was a, actually a writer on one of those songs. And that one was the one that was called The Flame of Love. And I don't even know if that's on the record that we're talking about. That is but- on the record, yeah. Should okay. know the better, didn't mean nothing, don't mean nothing. And, and The Summit's Light, and I'm forgetting the other one that is always on there with me. Yeah. yeah. Well, if I if I'm credited as a writer, that's uh, that's lucky for me because Richard uh, is a great songwriter and uh, made a ton of money off that record. So <laughs> I I do remember playing on some of that stuff, and I think was was Joe Ciccarelli the producer on that? I could check. I'm not sure about that. Uh, yeah, it's it's all good. I, I think I think Joe was the was the producer on that, and I did some uh, I did some keyboard playing for him. Um, in addition to uh, another guy, Tony Peluso and Steve Berry were a producing team, and I worked a lot for those guys back in the day. We did kind of more Motown uh, stuff. We did some stuff for Smokey and some rhythm section arranging for the Four Tops. And so when you're the, arranging and writing for all those people, it's just never like a starstruck thing, and it's never like, wow, my song is constantly being played on the radio? Well, I, uh, you know, I... I I don't think I ever had a hit uh, with any of the, I don't think we ever had a, a big hit with any of the people that, that I worked for. Um, but certainly when you walk into the studio and Smokey Robinson is there, uh, you are completely in awe of a person like that. Um, and, uh, um, you know, Smokey was, uh, was and still is one of my favorite uh favorite singers from the Motown era. And, and also I have to say, you know, talking about uh, Joe Cocker, I didn't ever get to record with Joe, but um, um, may he rest in peace. He was the, uh, of all the people that I played with on the road, he was the one that was the real deal. And uh, I've, I've said a ton of times, you know, I never played a show with him that I didn't get goosebumps listening to him sing. He was, he was a true star and and an incredible singer. And as, as somebody pointed out to me, in, interestingly enough, you know, really has, if you listen to his phrasing, you kind of close your eyes, uh, it's Ray Charles. He sings, uh, he has phrasing that's really similar to Ray Charles, whether that was intentional, whether he listened to Ray when he was coming up or whether he just happened to have the same gift. I don't know. But, um, you know, for a keyboard player, because you're sort of the accompanist in the band always, uh, that the phrasing, the singer's phrasing is the deal. You know, that's, that's what your guide is. That's who you're playing around with, who you're dancing with. And so when you get somebody like Joe that's got incredible phrasing, it's just tons of fun. Like I say, man, I'm jealous of you. <laughs> a lot of different levels. Now, he already released You're So Pretty, I mean, You're So Beautiful when you were touring with him, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. I'm jealous of you, man. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I've I've told the story, and actually, I posted up on um, 
on YouTube uh, uh, a few months ago. Uh, somebody put up a, a YouTube of Joe singing You Are So Beautiful at the Hollywood Bowl, I think. Um, and I just happened on this video one day and watched him sing that. And it brought back to mind the story. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you all the story, too. Uh, when, when I was touring with Joe, we played in Dortmund, Germany. Uh, and um, we, were, uh, we were on a bill with Richie Havens and a few other people. It was kind of a Woodstock revival tour. But we played You Are So Beautiful, and Richie came out and sang it as a duet with Joe, if you can imagine that. And uh, the, the different energy of those two singers, Richie was a, just a super sweet, gentle guy, you know, and he's standing back from the microphone with his hands behind his back, kind of bowed over a little bit singing. And Joe is just doing Joe, you know, he's all over the microphone and singing with his usual intensity. And it was just, it was just a moment, you know, everybody in the band was in tears. The people in the audience were completely silent. Just everybody, you know, was totally engaged in the moment. Uh, it was, it was really magical. So, uh, that's, you know, that's one of my favorite, uh, Joe Cocker memories. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't have anything at that level to share with you on that. So, that's impressive so you come back after getting married and you go back into or you try to go into film and tv how did that how did you actually get into that uh i had a friend uh a friend named michael hersmark who was uh a filmmaker and a, a film editor and he was uh his gig at the time was doing what they call excuse me visitor videos where, you know, like if you go and check into a hotel, there'll be a channel on the uh, on the TV that has all the local sites that you can see and maybe information about the hotel. And his uh, his gig at that time was making these uh, making these little videos. And we were talking one day and I said, well, so, so what do you do for music? Where do you get the music for those things? And he said, well, we've got records of library music and we'll just drop the needle on the record and put some music in like that. And I said, well, <laughs> however much you're paying for that music, I'll do it for less. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the, the, that was kind of the first, uh, the first stuff that I did to picture. I did, I did one thing I think for, uh, for Nova um, back when I was in Boston, but that never really turned into anything, but the doing the stuff, uh, doing these visitor videos was one of the first things that I did when I was in LA um, and then I had some, I got, I got some work doing industrial films, uh, industrial, uh, uh, kind of some kind of cool projects. There was a, a project that I did a 240 screen, uh, video wall that, uh, was in the Waldorf hotel for, uh, um, who was it? Uh, General Motors, when General Motors did their, you know, their, uh, product release for the year, they, have, they always threw a big party at the Waldorf. So, you know, gigs like that, uh, which were, which were decent, decent paying gigs and challenging in, in kind of fun ways. Um, those were things that kind of got me into doing the uh, music for picture thing. Okay. So how did you end up, at least with Jim Henderson? Did they hire you off commission? Uh, the Henson, uh, Henson thing, um, the first thing, things that I did with Henson were uh, a series of films called Unstable Fables, uh, 
And those happened in the mid-aughts, I think. Um, I want to say 2007, 2008 in there somewhere. Uh, uh, and uh, those, uh, uh, those happened because uh, Craig Bartlett, who was the creator of Hey Arnold, uh, was writing the script for those films. And so he, he uh, introduced me to the production and uh, I ended up scoring uh, three films for Henson. And then subsequently, Craig had um, the, his uh, PBS show called uh, Dinosaur Train. And uh, I did some of the initial uh, scoring for Dinosaur Train, wrote the main title with Craig and produced that. And um, yeah, that was uh, that was kind of my introduction to, to Hanson. Okay. And that led you to Nickelodeon or Nickelodeon led you to that? Yeah, it was the other way around. Nickelodeon, uh, Hey Arnold happened in the late uh, 90s. And uh, I think we, I think we went on the air in 95. Is that right? I'm, I could, I'm, I'm kind of blanking on the exact year that we, uh, that we actually premiered. Um, but yeah, that happened, that happened before. Uh, was it 90, was it 96? Yes, 96, sir. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, we, um, uh, Craig and I had met actually uh, through one of the companies that I had done the industrials for. Uh, that was our introduction. We did a crazy show for Toshiba. Uh, it was a pavilion that was in a, an expo uh, in, back in the 90s. And it was industrial robots that were, uh, it was a story where there was a, a teacher robot and then three student robots who were very unruly, unruly, and the teacher taught them all how to do the funky chicken. <laughs> so, <Okay>. uh, <laughs> and uh, Craig was in uh, Craig was in I think Osaka uh, for several months in the dead of winter in a really cold warehouse with um, a bunch of uh, uh, a bunch of engineers uh, trying to program these robots to make them look like they were dancing. You know, robots are industrial robots are really good at, at doing one motion over and over and over again with a lot of precision, but l trying to look like they're dancing is not something that uh, is particularly easy. And trying to time that to music was uh, more difficult still. So, uh, but anyway, that was my introduction. That's how I met Craig. And then when Craig uh, pitched Hey Arnold to Nickelodeon, he asked me if I'd be interested in scoring it. And I said, yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, that was the beginning of a great run with uh, with that show. And how did you cut? What what made you decide to choose a more jazz based lo-fi for the soundtrack? We had been uh, we had been listening to uh, a DJ uh, in LA uh, by the name of Jason Bentley, who's on KCRW in LA. The the uh, public radio station in Santa Monica, Santa Monica College. And Jason was playing, at the time, he was playing a, a lot of acid jazz. And we wanted to have a soundtrack that had a, an urban feel to it since, it's, you know, the story set in the city. And we just felt like that, uh, that combo of, at that point, it was kind of New Jack uh, beats and the great old, you know, drops from, uh, from this kind of soul jazz era uh, that was, that were making it into the, those, uh, um, in a, out of those records. Uh, we thought that'd be a great combo for the, you know, for the feel, for the score. 
And then the other the other element that um, we both really settled on was we wanted it to be uh, we we wanted to be able to be emotional at times and and to be melodic and that uh, led us to thinking about Vince Guaraldi, of course, who did the great uh, scores for the Peanut shows, which were very jazzy as well. So that's kind of where we that's sort of what we were modeling on. I don't think what we ended up with necessarily sounded like either one of those things, but. Um, that's good. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to copy something. You want to be in, inspired by it as, uh, as all artists are inspired by the work of other people. Well, the thing about it is people don't, people that I told when you were coming on, the first thing is one of my coworkers was like pigeon man, which surprisingly <laughs> stuck with him, but they didn't realize it was jazz right away. And then when they realized it was jazz, they were like the big, Oh, thing. So apparently you caught their interest with the music. I, I think so. You know, I've heard from a lot of people, uh, a, a lot of people who are now musicians um, who say that it was, you know, the Hey Arnold score was kind of their gateway drug, <laughs> gateway drug, you know, to, to learning about jazz. And uh, that's super gratifying, as you can imagine. You know, uh, it's, uh, it's such a rich... Uh, um, such a rich musical tradition. There's so much wonderful stuff out there. It's so creative. And uh, to think that, you know, we maybe steered a few people to um, listening to some stuff in, in that genre and being interested in learning about it, and, you know, maybe being a player. Uh, that's, that's, that's really great. And I, I see, you know, people send me um, uh, videos of uh, uh, of their bands, you know, playing uh, cues from the show, and it, it just totally knocks me out. There's a a a, a lot of players in uh, in in South America, um, Argentina, uh, in Peru, uh, uh, who've uh, sent me videos, uh, and and they are killing, man. They really <laughs> they sound great, and they um, they rethink the the writing in ways that freshens it up and so that's a that's really a blast when that happens well i think you at least the stuff that alone you accomplished the artist's dream you have people covering your song years after it's released and it's still live so that's amazing yeah it's uh it's like i say it's a it's a real blessing um it's a real blessing it's certainly something that uh I never expected when we were working on the show. It wasn't, uh, we weren't thinking we were making any kind of historical stuff. We were just having fun playing in the sandbox. And which track from that whole series do you think stands out the most to you? Oh, boy, it's, it's, hard to, uh, it's hard to pick just one, not, not least because there are so many different kind of stylistic things going on there. Um, I think the of the tracks that people uh, really reference all the time. Uh, Parents Day, the, th the theme from Parents Day uh, is super popular uh, on my uh, SoundCloud. I think that that's the one that has the most hits. There's a, you know, I put a YouTube video up of me playing it and that's got a gazillion hits on it. Um, uh, another of my favorites is uh, a track that's called Home with Jerome which people haven't covered so much, but it was from the first episode, uh, Downtown is Fruits. And it was what we called, what we ended up calling a walk and talk where Arnold and Gerald are walking along the street and there's just kind of this music playing, you know, under their conversation. And, and that one, 
I just like them. I like the melody. It really kind of encapsulates the the Arnold vibe. There's a it's a little felonious going on in there, and then there's a little you know uh, keyboard harmony that's a little more modern. I don't know, you know, but 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 I always really like that one. And um, the the Pigeon Man show. There's I think the emotional moments really resonated with a lot of people, and that ending of the Pigeon Man show was one that people really come back to again and again. Um, and then there's another cue called uh, Groove Remote that is in, um, God, what's the name of the episode? It's the episode where uh, Arnold and Grandma rescue the turtle uh, and set the turtle free. Yes, okay, I remember that one too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the episode now, but uh, uh, Groove Remote has been uh, uh, super popular too. Uh, uh, DJ bit it a few years back. Um, and uh, that really blew up for a minute. Uh, his uh, his remix of that really blew up for a minute. So, you know, there are a few of them that have had a had a, an afterlife. And uh, and the th- the theme song, both the theme song and the ending credits, uh, the which the ending credits are called Stompin'. Uh, those uh, have been covered by uh, different people, and they've they've done a great job. So, yeah, I agree on that. And how was it after like thirteen years coming back and actually having to write more tracks for it? Was yeah, it, it it was a little weird. Um, it was uh, it, it was different in that I think when we did the movie, uh, we were we really wanted to we, we really wanted to quote a lot of the thematic stuff from the series, so that people would feel like we were you know they were still in the Hey Arnold world. Uh, so I didn't do a lot of thematic writing for the movie. I mean, there's a few spots in the movie where there's new thematic stuff that comes in, but a lot of times we were quoting things that we used in the series, you know, for five years. So that was like kind of being back in my comfort zone. And the, the, the music from the series that was, I mean, it was all fun to work with, but some of the most fun writing for me was the jazzier kind of groovier stuff. And in these, uh, both of the Hey Arnold movies, uh, both uh, Arnold Saves the Neighborhood and uh, in the Jungle movie, they're big adventure films. So you don't really, there's not a lot of that groove stuff. Excuse me. There's not a lot of that groove stuff going on. There's not, you know, they're not kind of walking and talking down the, down the sidewalk. There's, it's a lot of action. So you're, the, the, the picture wants to have a different kind of score, you know, it wants a, Understood. Um, Understood. Action score there. And one question on that whole series: Which borough did it take place in? You know, uh, I can't. I can't answer that question. I will tell you that Craig uh, grew up uh, outside of Seattle, so there's a little Seattle in there. There's a little Portland in there. There's definitely some New York in there. But I'm just saying, as a kid from the city. That's something I've been trying to figure out. Where did you grow up? What borough did you grow up in? Uh, Brooklyn. Yeah. So if to you, it's probably said in Brooklyn, right? But there are a lot of Manhattan hints in there too. So <laughs> well, I was just like, ah. Yeah. Well, hey, I mean, if you're in Brooklyn, Manhattan's not very far away. So it's definitely a part of your world, as are the other boroughs. So, so yeah, I think it was intentionally not a particular hill hillwood was intentionally not a particular city but um if you look at craig's uh, sketchbooks uh 
from back in the day and also from when they were developing the series, um, there were definitely uh, buildings in uh, Seattle and Portland uh, that showed up in the designs, you know, the, the way the boarding house looks, the kind of rounded arches over the windows. The, yeah. Uh, so there's definitely some, both some East coast and some West coast in the, okay. Okay. In the, in the mix there. So what is least more enjoyable for you writing soundtracks or touring with artists? Mm. Well, I haven't, you know, uh, I, I haven't played uh, a, a tour date since in the last century. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't really, uh, I, I can't really say right now. I, I mean, I love, uh, I, I love writing music for picture the way I do. Uh, um, and I miss, uh, I, I miss sitting down and playing with other people. Um, it's, it kind of comes and goes in, in my life. Um, I have some friends that I like to sit down and play with. I got another composer friend, uh, Mark Leggett, uh, who's a guitar player and, um, we'll get together sometimes and just, you know, crack a bottle of wine and sit in the studio and just, and just play tunes together. Uh, and that's super fun. I think that kind of playing that sort of recreational, just having a musical conversation with somebody is, um, more pleasing than maybe uh, than than playing on stage in a big concert. I mean, that's that's thrilling, but that is thrilling for you know forty five minutes or an hour a day uh, out of another day that's full of boredom and bad food and you know r riding around in a in a bus. Uh, so I love playing. I love playing with people, but uh, on an ongoing basis, I think the composing part. Uh, is is more fun at, at at this stage of my life. Okay. And what do you think? Where do you think the status of jazz music will be in ten years? Well, I hope that it will still be alive and still have people bringing uh, new influences into it. Um, you know, I, I don't want to get off into some kind of quasi erudite musicological opining here, but I, I think um, when, a, when a musical form is new and fresh, um, uh, inspiration just pours into it. You know, you think about the beginnings of, of hip hop, um, which I'm not super conversant in, but just watching it from a distance, it was amazing how many uh, how many influences flowed into the genre, and then after a while, you know, if people think they can define what the genre is, and that happens, uh, that has certainly happened with jazz over the years. And people are very, you know, they talk about the jazz police. People are very resistant to uh, to bringing new kinds of influences into what they look at as a kind of established. Uh, established form and jazz people in particular, very suspicious of, of electronic musicians. You know, one of my uh, collaborators, a dear friend of mine, Patrick Gleason uh, was the synthesizer player in the M1 Dishi, you know, in, in Herbie's band. Um, and, and people just hated on him for, for being that guy. 
<laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> and, and they, and they, you know, I mean, as much as people love Herbie, they hated on Herbie a little bit for it too. You know, when he was doing it, uh, Pat and I made a record a couple of years ago called jazz criminal. And it, what we were doing was trying to take our, you know, kind of jazz ideas, uh, the jazz influences that, that were alive for us and to bring in, you know, uh, uh, electronic, you know, like EDM uh, influence into it. Uh, I, I don't think we succeeded because it just ended up being a lot more dense and weird and less, you know, groove oriented uh, than than EDM is. Um, but you know, uh, those kinds of experiments aren't aren't always uh, met with a lot of favor. You know, Joe Zolinol weather report you know they took a lot of heat from back in the day even though people loved what they did but there was also you know that's not jazz same thing with same thing with hip-hop you know uh hip-hop uh got got a little uh got a little rigid in a way and, and then all of a sudden here comes uh Kendrick Lamar to, to pimp a butterfly uh and really kind of blows things blows things open again you know yes. so and then there's you know country hip-hop and stuff like that so that's I think this is all a very uh, roundabout way of saying uh, my hope is that jazz will have expanded outwards to include uh, influences from other forms and, and in that way, you know, kind of refreshed itself. Um, and anybody can go back and, and learn uh, how to, how to play, you know, not to play like bird, but to how to play his tunes, how to play those licks how to deliver that stuff physically on an instrument. You know, kids learn that in, in college these days, you know. Uh, but that's not, but that's not breaking new ground. And it's not, um, it's, it's not uh, keeping the art form uh, alive and vibrant. So uh, that's my hope for jazz. It's my hope for all, all forms of music is that somebody will come along and kick all of our ass and say, well, how about this? And we'll go, wow. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> okay. So if you could remove all the barriers and constraints, what type of project would you make and who would be on it? Uh, you know, uh, I've been working on stuff, uh, I think, in a, in a really interesting way. Um, uh, the pandemic has forced all musicians and all of us to redefine our lives in ways that we never imagined we would. Uh, uh, and for me, uh, um, I've got a project called little blue hat that I've been working on. And, um, that stuff is all stuff that I've made, uh, using different tools to start things out, you know, working with a lot of modular synths, uh, working in Ableton, which, um, I, uh, I hadn't worked in, uh, a lot, uh, and, uh, collaborating with people long distance, uh, collaborating with people that I've wanted to play with, you know, Benny, Benny Moffin, who was, uh, on the, uh, jazz criminal record is going to play on, on one of the tracks I've been working on, um, remotely. Um, so, so I, I'm getting to, you know, I'm getting to l live the dream in a way. Uh, it's not, um, m making personal music like that is not a great way to make a living, uh, you don't, you don't, you know, the, the kind of old model where you sold records and you made money that way totally doesn't exist. And now for a lot of people, the ability to play live uh, is uh, um, severely hampered, if not completely eradicated for the time being. So, 
it's it's not a money maker, but I'm I'm fortunate to the wolf is not at my door right now, and I can make personal music in a way that I haven't made personal music in a long time. You know, when you're working on a show, you don't have a lot of time to um, we're on a TV show, I should say. You don't have a lot of time to um, to make personal stuff. Uh, it's um, uh, TV composers refer to it as feeding the beast. You know, you you let this uh, critter into your life. It's got a voracious appetite for music and you just got to keep writing and writing and writing and writing. Uh, uh, and you don't really have a lot of time to do anything else while that's going on. No, I feel you on that, but at least you're living, like you said, the dream, both sides of it. Yeah. Very, very fortunate to, to, uh, to be able to sit here in my in my little uh, uh, in my little room in San Rafael and and write the stuff that I've been writing, so having a good having a good time doing it, and getting to collaborate uh, there. I made a new version of the song uh, Groove Remote, which is up on my SoundCloud. I hope your listeners will check it out. The SoundCloud is the Jimmy Lang, T H E J I M M Y L A N G, on SoundCloud. And there's a ton of Hey Arnold music up there. There's a bunch of other film score work that I've done, but also uh, there's a playlist for Little Blue Hat, which is my project that I'm working on now, and hope people will check that out. Okay. And one other thing before I let you go, okay? Okay. Are there any jazz artists within the past 10 years that made you go, wow? Any? Just curious. Oh, yeah. You can say no, it's okay. <laughs> you know, nobody... Uh, Nobody leaps to mind. Uh, I will say, uh, uh, over the summer, um, I, uh, I I saw an Instagram that was an acapella recording of uh, a song that we wrote uh, for Hey Arnold back in the day called "Look Up." Sweet, it's a sweet little song. It's a song that the grandma sang. The grandma sang on the show. Uh, and this woman had just made an acapella recording of She's just walking around outside and singing the song. And I reached out to her and I said, hey, do you want to um, make, make me a full recording of that? Uh, and I'll put some piano on it. And uh, she did. And she has an incredible voice. And right about the same time we were doing that, she dropped an album. Uh, and uh, I think it's an incredible record. Her name is Manushka Joseph. Uh, M-A-N-O-U-C-H-K-A or C-A. I've seen it spelled both ways. Joseph is the last name, J-O-S-E-P-H. And the record is called Made It to Jaded. Uh, check it out. It's, uh, it's really good writing, really good personal writing. Um, she did a lot of programming on it. She worked with some other producers and programmers down in Florida. Um, but uh, that's the thing. Uh, oh, and then uh, there's a guy named Eric Hall who made a new version of uh, uh, Steve Reich's uh, music for 18 musicians. I don't know if you're familiar with that piece. Nope. Um, <laughs> he did it all uh, in his home studio with guitars and piano. And this is not jazz I'm talking about. Um, Manushka's record is uh, probably you would call it hip hop. And... Um, Eric Hall's uh, version of Music for 18 Musicians is definitely, um, you know, modern Terry Reich, uh, uh, Steve Reich, uh, Terry Riley, uh, 
uh, kind of writing, uh, minimal uh, writing. But uh, those are two things that I think are really worth listening to that will uh, ex expand your uh, expand your viewpoint a little bit. Okay. Well, sir, could you please tell everyone how to contact you, your website, your social media, et cetera? Yeah, my website is uh, Jim Lang Music, all one word. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram, although I'm not a huge uh, tweeter or uh, Instagrammer, but I do uh, post things up from time to time. Um, have a nice studio in Los Angeles called Knob World that's uh, very much on the air and... Um, that you can uh, look at through the Jim Lang Music website, the pictures. And uh, um, and then on the Instagram, we generally have some news about who's been in the studio. So always some exciting stuff going on down there. Okay. Well, sir, thank you for joining us. It means a lot. Thanks, Leander. It's fun talking to you. Okay, everyone. This is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>